Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to rape, sexual threats towards children and sexual assault, haemophilia, the murder of children, war crimes, interference with and the defilement of corpses, miscarriage, birth trauma, infertility, civilian deaths, starvation, fire, child death, paedophilia and bleeding. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, comrades! I'm Hannah, a historian researching the women of the Australian anti-nuclear movement and also a crocheter extraordinaire. Crochet extraordinaire? Crochet. I don't know how to say it. I know how to <coughs> do it. Yeah, I can't do it, but I know how to say I it. I will teach you one yeah, day. One day. And Privet, I'm Nicola. I am a historian and a teacher in training. And um, right now I am researching, however, just all the young kids' songs I can find. Uh, ram, sam, sam, uh, ram, sam, sam. <laughs> gully, 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 and a ram, sam, sam, uh, you gonna interrupt me? No. Okay. I was just gonna let you. Arabi, Arabi. Okay. Gully, 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 That's enough. Okay. Welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we talk about different women and the wars they are involved in, and sometimes we talk about pirate queens instead. And sometimes we just totally veer off course and spend an hour on transgender people in the 1950s. Because why not? But this week we are on the topic. We are recording this. We are so on the topic. We are recording this episode on the 19th of June, 2021. Two days and 103 years ago today. We should have recorded this two days ago. I hadn't finished it two days ago. I wrote... Okay, in the writing this, I had all the research done and then I just didn't write it until two days ago. And I've spent the last two days, I've hammered out 12,000 words. I'm just that good. I hope none of my like future students listen to this. Like, but miss, you do all your work last minute. It's like, that's okay. Yes, do what I say, not, not what I, I do. do. Anyway, two days and 103 years ago, on this day, the Tsar of all the Russias, Nicholas II, a.k.a. Nikolai Alexandrovich, his wife, Empress Consort Alexandra Feodorovna, and their five children, the Grand Duchesses Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and the Tsarevich Alexei, were brutally murdered by Bolshevik forces in Yekaterinburg during the confusion, horror, and the cold of the Russian Civil War. I can't actually remember what day this will be released, but happy anniversary! It will be the 23rd. Happy anniversary! <laughs> Yay! So we all know the tale of Princess Anastasia. Or rather, as Dana Schwartz put it in Noble Blood, we all know the myths surrounding the tale mm-hmm. of Princess Anastasia, Nicholas and Alexandra's youngest and cheekiest daughter. I'd argue all women of a certain age know of Princess Anastasia through the film Anastasia by Don Bluth, which is a delightful romp through a non-delightful period of history, <laughs> which also features the voice acting talents of my problematic fave, Kelsey Grammer. So did you also love the film growing up, Anna? I didn't, actually. So <gasps> wow. I didn't watch it for the first time until, I want to say, five years so ago. So were you one of those wankers, like, oh, it's not even accurate. And it's like, what about no. this movie? Because some people say, it's not even accurate. It's like, yes, yes there's there a talking bat. A magic monk. Who takes his head <laughs> off regularly. I do enjoy him. Yes. No, I just, I didn't watch a lot of Disney. It's not a Disney I know film. it's not Disney, but I didn't I'll watch a lot of those sort of films That's valid. Up. So I watched it a few years ago because everyone's like, Anastasia's amazing. And I was like, I have to watch this movie. Anastasia. And it is amazing. I love it. It's great. They knew what they were doing with Dimitri. Let and me put it that like, way. And mu- like the live musical different to the movie but also fabulous. I haven't seen that yet because I don't like watching bootlegs fair enough yeah. I haven't seen the bootleg because they cut Rasputin and I'm like what's Rasputin. the point but it means the communist party is the bad guys I know and I enjoy it but as we were discussing with the girls my like dream role is Rasputin yeah you would be good <laughs> I would be a very good Rasputin 
Yeah, because I'm a Siberian peasant who can't read. <laughs> so I find actually when all my students who I've come across who are doing the Russian Revolution in history, um, it's a very popular subject to study for people doing the final year of high school in Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, all the girls know about Anastasia, but none of the boys ever do. So, and they've always seen, the girls have always seen the movie and the boys haven't. It's really interesting. That is so fascinating. Yeah. Fun fact of mine from teaching it. So it was a first year university subject mm. and they were doing group work and we were, I was going around and this, this girl was excitedly telling the rest of her group, she's like, so <gasps> this one princess, she survived and oh, she got no. out and I had to be like, no, no, she died too. Actually, they, also they just did... didn't dig a big enough hole. <laughs> they actually <laughs> deliberately split the bodies up. Yes. To hide the facts. Um, but also there was a theory that if the princess who escaped, it might have been Maria instead because she actually... Mm. Well, we'll get. To, she tried to run to the door. Mm. Um, Nobody and, escaped, and she'd also had a romance sort of thing with one of the guards. Yes. So that was like, if any of them survived, yeah, it might she have kind been. of might have had help, but no. they didn't. They died. Yes. So she, I was like, I was like, I'm so sorry to break this to you, <laughs> but no, she did. You destroyed that poor little girl. I know. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, this week we're not actually discussing Anastasia, just to confuse you all. Uh, there is a great episode of Nicola's favourite podcast, You're Wrong About, which has Noble Blood's uh, Dana Schwartz discussing the life and experiences of Grand Duchess Anastasia and her sisters, so check that one out if you're interested. This week, instead, we are going noble, though, still, and looking instead at Anastasia's mother, Alexandra of Hesse. Hesse? Hesse. Many blame her and her consorting with Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen, oh. for the fall of the 300-year Romanov dynasty. When in actuality it was completely her fault, but for not popping out a boy quickly enough. Or at least not popping out a boy that didn't have a rare blood disorder. But actually, you know, it wasn't her fault at all. With any and all revolutions, there, there is always a question of who is to blame for the fall of the old regime. And rarely, if ever, is it the fault of one person, one person alone, just as it is rarely one person who leads a revolution in itself. I mean, You mean Lenin didn't just single-handedly fix Russia? It's that thing of, like, I was actually going through a textbook on the Russian Revolution the other day. One mm. of my students has lent it to me. And um, they're like... And then the um, writer actually notes, like, by the way, Lenin wasn't in Russia. <laughs> like, just so you know, he's not there. Um, I believe Trotsky was. And he was like, oh, shit! <laughs> Anyway, so that's how Alexandra is framed as the one responsible for it all. For it all. The route through which Rasputin wriggled his way into the Russian royal family, the Romanovs, and resulted in the Russian Revolution. You're welcome. <laughs> that was some good uh, alliteration. alliteration there, yes. Considering Rasputin died in December 1916, three months before the February 1917 revolution, and almost an entire year before the October, 19... October 1917 revolution and or coup, that's a pretty impressive failure. Woo! A brief note before we go further. Until the Bolsheviks came to power, the Russian Empire used the old style of the calendar, the Julian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was introduced in Russia in January 1918, a little after the other regions of Europe, some of which had done so in the 1600s, Scotland, and others who had swapped in the mid-1750s. The calendar was changed because of the Romans. That's right, another thing the Romans did for us. The roads, the aqueducts, and so on. Someone very clever, or very boring, figured out that there were too many leap years in the Julian calendar, and it meant the date for Easter had drifted too far from reality and needed to be snapped back. Now, I would argue many things about Easter have drifted <laughs> far from reality, and I'm not the Pope or the head of the various Orthodox churches. So, in this episode, we'll be using the new style dates, except when we use the old style dates. This is actually my bugbear with how we teach history mm -hmm. in Year 12. And, like, I get why they do it. There's 100%. a lot more focus on, like, dates and names. And it's like, where is the focus on the emotion, on where's, the social where's movement? Where's the themes? Where's the cultural history? Yeah. I remember when I was doing revs in Year 12. Save it for later. Okay. 
Oh, you can tell me. It's okay. It's about my study system. Okay, cool. Um, I had, like, timelines. Mm. Like, I wrote them out and they were, like, taped all around the wall, like, wallpapered the house for my exam because you had to remember the dates. Yep. And now I'm a year away from being an official doctor of history. And I know some dates, but, like, it's really not the biggest Tuesday. thing that I do. Like, yeah. <laughs> I know years, years and months are more important than specific days. Yeah, like, if I am looking at a particular battle hmm. or lead up to, like, there's that point in the February Revolution where you should know the days, Yeah, that that particular one week especially, but the biggest history thing, is the not big, about memorising dates. The biggest part about knowing dates is knowing when things are happening at the same time in other places. Yeah. So you can make the links. Like, you know Russian Revolution came after French Revolution because, spoiler alert, that we'll get into later. Yeah. It's a follow-on in a way. And also it's happening during the First World yeah, War. Yeah, so you need yeah. to know those bits, but you don't need to know the specific date of something. Yeah, and that frustrates me a lot. Yeah. Especially when, because things are happening in, like, St. Petersburg that people in even Moscow aren't going to hear about for, like, a week. Yeah. So it doesn't really... <laughs> anyway, yeah. moving on. <laughs> so it's also further complicated because um, Russia moved from the old Julian-style calendar to the new Gregorian-style calendar um, a little after the, the October Revolution and or coup. Uh, and so it can get a bit confusing. So we kind of use the dates interchangeably in this episode because, as I said, I wrote this over two days and I couldn't be bothered lining everything up correctly. And if we're confused, you should be confused yep. too. It's only fair. So shall we move on to something that's more interesting than calendars? Yes, okay. by all means. Take me. Take me to Russia. No. Oh. So Queen Victoria in England is where we're actually going to begin our time. That was really good acting on my part because I wrote this. I know. But they think... They I'm surprised. Now. They don't now. Oh, okay. You've ruined it all. I've ruined the process. <laughs> the illusion. Disgraceful. At her death, Queen Victoria was the longest reigning British monarch ever, and commonly referred to as the grandmother of Europe. Grandmama. <laughs> she also controlled the British Empire at its zenith of power, with colonies including India, South Africa, Australia, and Ireland. The empire was so big that the sun never set upon the British Empire, but that was mostly because God doesn't trust the British in the dark, which is a very sensible position to take. Queen Victoria also famously was treated by Joseph Lister when she had an infection. Nicola, this is not a medical history podcast. Yeah. Queen Victoria and her consort... So Joseph Lister pioneered the use of carbolic acid as disinfectant. It's he who Queen Lister Victoria actually- and her consort, yeah. Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, had a short but happy marriage of 21 years. So happy, in fact, they had nine children. Nice! Even though Victoria thought babies were ugly. Those nine children would go on to become various members of various royal families across Europe, and one would be King of England, Edward VII. Victoria's youngest son, Leopold, I always get uncomfortable when it comes to nobility named Leopold, um, and lawyers (laughs) named Vladimir, was also known to have haemophilia. And at least two of Victoria's daughters, Alice and Beatrix, were carriers of the... Beatrice, sorry, were carriers of the illness. This form of haemophilia, thought to be a rarish form of the disorder called haemophilia B, appears to have spontaneously appeared in Victoria's genetic makeup. Some argue that Victoria was actually a love child between her mother, Victoria Saxe-Coburg-Zarfeldt, and some other random dude with the clotting disorder, because Scandal. we know Victoria's dad, Prince Edward of Kent and Strathern, did not have it. Also, if you had it in this period, your life expectancy was about 13, so chances are you're not going to live long enough to pass it on. Um, but this rumor about Victor- Queen Victoria's parentage is thought to be false. It's known that the likelihood of some forms of genetic me- mutation, including haemophilia B, rise as the father's age rises, and Victoria's dad was in his early 50s when he knocked up Victoria's mum. Mm. So hard luck, Victoria, and also your daughter, Victoria. So due to something to do with chromosomes, I don't understand. Though women can carry this sort of haemophilia, only men tend to present with the disorder. The child of a carrier of haemophilia has a 50% chance of inheriting the mutation, and so the parent has a 50% chance of having a child who either has or carries haemophilia. 
The daughter of a male haemophiliac will always inherit the mutation, but a son of a male haemophiliac will not inherit it. A woman can only be affected with this form of haemophilia, haemophilia B, if they are born to a haemophiliac father and a mother who is either a carrier of the illness or a haemophiliac herself. Queen Victoria's daughter and third child overall, Princess Alice, was unbeknownst to them a carrier of the gene. Princess Alice is an unfortunate figure who had a pretty sad life. Thought of as an ugly baby by her mum. And mom. to be fair, she thought of that of all of them. <sighs> yeah. Alice seems to have been a bit of an emotional crutch for Queen Victoria. How rude. You're so ugly, but I need your help. When Prince Albert died in 1861, as we all know, Queen Victoria would enter an intense period of mourning that would last the rest of her life. But, fun fact here that I'm interrupting with, because I learnt this recently and it mm-hmm. entertains me no end. So... Like, decades after Albert died, Victoria's still in deep mourning. She's, she hasn't gone to any public events yeah. like, since Maybe she just didn't want to go. She's like, fuck yeah, Albert's dead. I can, like, be she sad. She hasn't gone anywhere. And then, yeah. in, like, I, th- I think the 1890s, I think, um, again, dates, but <laughs> the Buffalo Bill Wild West travelling show came oh from America God. to Europe. Yeah. And... Her son, her eldest, went to see it and he's like, Mom, you've got to go see this show. And, what a stroke of ingenuity her son and this had. this is the first time ah! Queen Victoria left and went to a public event since Albert's death was to the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. That's amazing. I love this that said, so much. If I was in a situation, the best way to get me out of the house would be to put on Silence of the Lambs because I fucking love that movie. And there's a villain in it called Buffalo Bill. Fair. Also an excellent ice cream. So, oh my god, I just got that. (laughs) So, the first six months of Queen Victoria's mourning were extra mega intense. Alice became her mother's unofficial secretary. While the British court was still in mourning for Albert, less than a year after his death, Alice married a minor German prince, Louis of Hesse. If you're a royal Louis, you're going to have a bad time. You're going to have a bad time. They were to be the rulers of a small chunk of southern Germany called the Grand Duchy of Hesse. Alice seems to have been an intelligent and direct woman, even if the court at Hess was a bit of a bummer. You said I wasn't going to have to say Hess much, but I am. I'm sorry. I she messed was, up. <laughs> she was very interested in medicine and nursing and the work of Florence Nightingale, either for her medical work or her work in developing graphs representing the causes of death during the Crimean War. They're called polygraphs. Not pie charts. No. She was even interested in gynaecology, which strained her relationship with her mother, the famously prudish Queen Victoria, though, by all accounts, Victoria and Albert banged a bunch. So, Alice had seven living children, Victoria, Elizabeth, Irene, Ernest, Louis, Frederick, Alex, and Marie. The two we need to remember here are Alex and Elizabeth. However, just a diversion. Alice's oldest daughter, Victoria, would have a son called Louis, who would grow up to be Louis Mountbatten, the last viceroy of India, who was assassinated by the IRA in 1979. If you'd like to know more about the Irish Republican Army, can't help you there. Alice's daughter Victoria had a daughter of her own, Alice of Battenberg, whose son would eventually grow up to marry his cousin, Queen Elizabeth II. One of Alex's older siblings, Prince Friedrich, died in May 1873. Cause of death? Now, this annoyed me because I looked it up and it said haemophilia. But what happened was... In February 1873, Friedrich did cut his ear and it bled for three days, which isn't what you want, and basically definitely confirms he had haemophilia. A month after this incident, though, Friedrich and Ernest Louis, uh, an older sibling, were playing in Princess Alice's bedroom. How old's Friedrich at this point? Friedrich is about three, two or three years old. He didn't get very old. 
as well. Ernst went into another room and peered through the window there at his brother because they could like see the windows from each other's yeah. uh, area. So Princess Alice was like, oh shit, get away from the window. And she ran to get Ernst. And while she was doing that, Friedrich climbed up on a chair by the open window to get a better look at Ernst. He fell off the chair and threw the window oh, no. and he fell 20 feet onto a stone banister. And then the book was like, he then got a brain bleed, which wouldn't clot because of his haemophilia. And I was like, I don't, I don't know much about toddlers, but... I feel like the ones without haemophilia couldn't walk off a 20-foot yeah. fall onto stone anyway. It's like, cause yeah. of death, haemophilia. No, cause of death, gravity. Yes. Like, it's awful. Yes. But, yeah. It's a good thing Alice was so interested in medicine, because in 1878, there was an outbreak of diphtheria in the Hess court. It also infected Alice's family. Diphtheria is a bacterial infection that causes sore throats and a barking cough and swollen lymph nodes. Now, we have vaccines against diphtheria, but untreated diphtheria can cause serious fevers, ravage the respiratory system and cause the nose and throat to fill up with a thick coating that makes it hard to breathe and swallow. It's like dead tissue. Yeah. It can also affect heart rate and breathing, which you need to do to stay alive. The 1878 outbreak of diphtheria killed Alice's daughter, Princess Marie, and then tragically it killed Alice herself. Princess Alex too contracted diphtheria, but she survived. She was six years old. Diphtheria has now sincerely been eradicated in Australia thanks to vaccination. Until her mother and sister's death, Princess Alex had a relatively happy childhood, and her nickname was Sunny. Oh, that's cute. After that, Alex described it as if her childhood could come under a great cloud. Sadly, of all her siblings, Alex had been actually the closest to Marie, who passed away from diphtheria. With one parent left, it was probably a good thing that Princess Alex and her siblings were doted on by their maternal grandmother, one of the most powerful women in the world. Queen Victoria was in constant contact with Princess Alex and would send letters to both Alex and Alex's private tutors asking how her favourite granddaughter was doing. Favouritism much. Oh, it's super favouritism, man. Every Christmas, Alex and her siblings were brought to England to celebrate with their cousins, including the future Prince George. I want to say six. No. It's five? Five. It's five. Um, he was the one played in The King's Speech by Michael Gambon, best known to us for his dual roles in the Doctor Who Christmas <laughs> special, A Christmas Carol, which also starred wartime singer Catherine Jenkins oh. and a flying shark. Oh. Just a bit of humour for you there. There's already been two dead kids this episode and there's going to be more! Yay! Um, like, I know the royal family elite, the Tsars did awful things, but no one deserves to die the way the <laughs> Romanovs did. All the hundreds of thousands of others who died during yeah. the Russian Revolution, Civil War under the orders of Lenin, Trotsky, Dzinsky and Stalin, and also the ensuing genocides, cleansing and mass arrests. Yep. I think I need to get outside more. Princess Alex was one of Victoria's favourite grandchildren. Like, we know for a fact that Alex was Victoria's favourite because Victoria wanted Alex to become a Queen Consort of the United Kingdom. A.K.A. she wanted Alex to marry Prince Albert, A.K.A. the Queen's grandson, A.K.A. Victoria's cousin, A.K.A. incest, A.K.A. also, interestingly, the Prince sometimes rumoured to have been Jack the Ripper. So, you know, what the fuck is up with the royal family? Yeah. I mean, he wasn't Jack the Ripper, but it's not like... it is a fun theory. It is. It's... It's not like today the British royal family is protecting a prince because he's a pedophile or something. So, um, we go join the Republic movement. Yeah. Yeah, but then we end up with President Scott Morrison. Yeah, I don't... Where were we? Okay. Even if it's gross, like Scott Morrison as president, Queen Victoria's heart was in the right place. Ironically, her son, Prince Albert, actually died before becoming king, and his brother, Prince George, would eventually become King George. Queen Victoria also tried to hook him and Alex up, but Alex was like, I just see you as a cousin, sorry. Like, it's just not going to work. Cousins owned. <laughs> Queen Victoria was like, okay, look, that's fair. Your refusal under such pressure shows great strength of character. Alex might have been shy. She preferred to hang out and read in her room when there were people about, mood, and refused to play piano for groups of people because her hands got sweaty. 
Same. But she also had an iron will similar to that of her grandmother, and a very definite way of seeing the world. Perhaps things might have been different come the revolution if she'd been a little bit more flexible. In 1884, who cares what month, Alex's sister, <laughs> Princess Elizabeth of Hesse, married Grand Duke Ser Sergei Alexandrovich. Alex was 12 at the time, and while there, she found herself in discussion with the nephew of the groom, who coincidentally was also a second cousin through their shared great-grandmother, and third cousin through another grandfather. The nephew was 16, a massive nerd, and his name was Nicholas. Nicholas presented Alex with a brooch as a little love token, cute. and together they scratched their names into a window at a palace in St. Petersburg. That's pretty cute. Nicholas also wrote in, his, wrote in his diary that they loved each other. Mm. Nicholas was a very odd diary keeper. Like, I would go way more into it, but... Um, it just makes him come across more as a massive fucking idiot, as opposed to an unconcerned and foolish autocrat, which is how I understand him. Alex visited Elizabeth again in 1890, but while there, also visited young Nicholas, now 20. Alex was 16. They played Batman, had tea parties, and went ice skating. Which, to me, is proof Nicholas didn't have haemophilia, among other things. He wouldn't let him. It's not a good skating. hobby if you've got haemophilia. It's not a good hobby anyway. Who the f Whatever. Nicholas wrote in his diary, only in Russian, or probably in French, aristocracy... French, Russian, French. French. Yeah. It is my dream to one day marry Alex. I have loved her for a long time, but more deeply and strongly since 1889, when she spent six months in St. Petersburg. For a long time, I have resisted my feeling that my dearest dream will come true. Imagine that in a Russian accent. More on Nicholas later. Alex's sister Elizabeth, and our Grand Duchess Elizabeth Fedorovna. Fedorovna? Fedorovna. I love that that's the one we're tripping up on. No, no. And it's probably the shortest one. But we will be calling her Elizabeth still, and her husband were very much in favour of the match. Queen Victoria, on the other hand, was not in favour. Maybe Alex and Nicholas weren't close enough cousins. <laughs> she had another issue. The British Empire and the Russian Empire were both massive tracts of land, or in the case of the British Empire, massive tracts of sea. However, whereas Queen Victoria was a constitutional monarch, sometimes reluctantly, of Britain, setting more as a figurehead, the royal family in Russia were very different. The Russian royal family, the Romanovs, were autocrats in complete charge of everything to do with Russia. Not only that, there were quasi-religious figures who in fact used the Russian Orthodox Church to solidify their control over the empire. As is perhaps hinted by the system of rulers, Russia was also an incredibly backwards country in comparison with the rest of Europe around the 1900s. Mm -hmm. While Britain, Germany and France had all embraced and adapted to the Industrial Revolution and used it to build both their manufacturing outputs as well as their armies, Russia was still very, very backwards. If you can hear something in the background, it's Hannah's mum using masking tape, by the way. We're renovating. Russia's landmass is big, but its cities and industrial output were very, very small. Um, in 1915, Russia had produced altogether about 1,000 cars. They'd been built in Russia. Many more had been imported, though. In 1913, in England, Henry Ford's Manchester factory alone put out 7,000 cars, and another 9,000-odd were produced by various other car companies around the UK. Yeah, that's a little bit different. Yeah, I, there's lots of different ways you can compare it, but cars yeah. is easy, I yeah. think. It's like nice, easy numbers. But too. also, at this point in history, they're only limited to the upper classes yes. as well. Yeah. yeah. The political system of Russia was an absolute joke. In addition to the autocracy, the bureaucracy of the country was a 14-level behemoth, mostly in the hands of the nobility. <laughs> of a population of 160 million in 1910, half a percent were the ruling class, 12% were the nobles and bureaucratic leaders and merchants, high-level officers in the army and so on. 4% of the population was industrial working class. That is about 6.5 million people. Keep that in mind when old mate Lenin comes around. Mm. Um, the industrial working class was based primarily in Moscow and St. Petersburg, along with the middle class, who are 1.5% of the population, about 2.5 million people. Again, keep that in mind when old mate comes up. 
Finally, a whopping 82% of the population were serfs. Were peasants, sorry. Who until 1861, the majority of those had been serfs. One of the reasons the industrial working class in Russia in the 1900s was so small that even when the peasants underserfed and were permitted to go into the cities to work in factories, they still had to return their farms for harvest and other important times. Which also meant the union movement couldn't really build as it had in yes. other countries. Yeah. Russia was this great lumbering dinosaur, this odd vestige of absolute monarchy in the increasingly modernised Europe. Also, to quote that Mitchell and look, if there's anything we've learned during the last thousand miles of retreat, it's that Russian agriculture is in dire need of modernisation. <laughs> that joke is actually set during World War II, but it's just as relevant here at the end of the um, 1800s. 1900s? No, 1800s. Yeah. Sorry. This joke is set during World War II, but it's just as relevant here at the end of the 1800s. It's relevant for many, many centuries, really. Like, mm. far longer than it should be relevant. Also, that, that's... I hate to overquote it because it is quite overquoted, but... Oh, are we the baddies? <laughs> Beautiful. David Mitchell, hit me up. All right. <laughs> so, all of that backwards agriculture, was that by... Victor was that by Victoria? <laughs> so... Was that why Victoria disliked Nicholas as a husband for Alex? Russian agrarian practices. Well, actually, she liked Nicholas as a person, but she was like, Russia's shit and Nicholas is not ready to be czar. Fair. Victoria also felt that the Russian people were fundamentally different to the people of Britain or Germany. Fair enough, because when the British killed their monarchs, they just cut their heads off nice and quick and clean. Unless you're Mary, Queen of Scots, in which case it was not. But was she a Queen of quick. England? She was Queen of Scotland. So. That doesn't count. No, but, you know, close. Anyway, in addition, Nicholas's parents weren't particular fans of Alex, because she was German. Foreshadowing. They foresaw the German bombing of Liverpool in the 1940s and were like, if we'd lived, we would have loved the Beatles. How dare you? But actually, they wanted Nicholas to marry the daughter of the presumed heir of the French throne, which was at this point... Um, no, wait, there was no th French yeah, throne. Yeah, like, but they knew who the king would be. Ah. So it's like... Steve's daughter. <laughs> if there was a king and they weren't going to kill you, he would be yeah. king. Okay. And they still had, like, an important role, just, like, symbolically speaking. Yeah. So when Tsar Alexander III, though, was sickening, he changed his mind about Alex. So we've got some role play here. I will be Grand Duke Nicholas and you be Tsar Alex III. Okay. All right. You're going to be Tsar, which I have done a piss poor job of preparing you for. In your defence, father, I was never particularly interested in becoming Tsar. After all the things you did for me to try and get me to be a good ruler over all of Russia, which God chose our family to rule. Like how I gave you that British tutor who taught you watercolours. Yeah, I'm not sure how that was meant to help me. Like how I gave you a history and modern politics tutor and you just sat there picking your nose. Well, only history's interesting. I'm going to have lots of balls where we all dress up like old-fashioned Russian people. Who cares about contemporary Russian politics? And then I enrolled you in the officer corps of the guards so you could learn how to be a man and exist in the real world. And that's where I met my mistress, who was a ballerina. Oh, yeah, she was hot. I really hope she doesn't marry your cousin one day. You know what? I feel like shit. You can marry the German chick if she'll have you. Hopefully she'll lead. You seem pretty unprepared to be czar. Sucks. I'm about to do this. Oh, here comes the royal doctor. Hello, doctor. What's wrong with my father? He's gone all still. The czar is dead. Long live the new czar. <gasps> ah, but, quote, what is going to happen to me and all of Russia? I am not prepared to be a czar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. I have no idea how to even talk to the ministers. <laughs> and scene. Alex was still reluctant to marry Nicholas, as she was a committed Lutheran. Tsar Alexander III and his wife did send for other women for Nicholas to marry, but Nicholas was set upon marrying Alex. Alex did love Nicholas, but as a committed Lutheran, this distressed her greatly. 
She would have to renounce. She thought she'd have to renounce and join the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Her faith was very important to her. Oddly, to modern eyes, she even fervently believed that the divine in the divine right of kings. In April 1894, Alex's brother Ernest married Nicholas's cousin, Princess Victoria. Yeah. There's too many fucking Victorians. <laughs> and so both Alex and Nicholas attended the wedding. Nicholas was determined. He'd always gotten what he wanted in life and felt he truly loved Alex. He brought along a Russian Orthodox priest to talk with Alex and a woman to help Alex learn Russian. All at the wedding? Like, because they went for, like, a couple weeks. Okay. And, like, Queen Victoria was there as well. Like, everyone... It was, like, one of those big events. Like, while you're ballroom dancing, quick, you got to learn Russian. <laughs> so the day after Nicholas arrived to the wedding area, the zone of which the wedding was going to take place, <laughs> he proposed to Alex and begged her for two hours to convert, all the while she cried and refused. She was crying about the religious aspect, by the way, not the proposal. She did want the proposal, but she was conflicted. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, this is this sorted out really, is that they realised she'd not have to renounce her Lutheranism... Lutheranism to become part of the Russian Orthodox Church. So, so really like, it wasn't a problem It wasn't actually a problem at all. So she got that squared away. Tsar Nicholas II of Al- um, and Alex of Hesse were engaged. They had a hell of a wedding, though, in late November 1894. Not in a good way. So there was two issues. One, the imperial court was still in mourning for the former Tsar, so everyone at the wedding bar Alex was wearing mourning clothes, so it had a quite funereal vibe. Secondly, the only reason they were allowed to be wed at all was because it was the now dowager empress's birthday, which meant mourning could be relaxed slightly, and also meant that she was pretty pissed in the corner because she's like, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. My husband just died and it's my birthday. At least he died of natural causes, unlike his father who was shot in the face, I think. He was shot somewhere. Mm. Anyway. In May 1896, Alex and Nicholas were crowned at the Kremlin. I don't know why it took two years from their marriage to the Kremlin. I assume it was like an organisational thing and also like, yeah. they need time to mourn, blah, 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 blah. Bureaucracies don't Change all the posters. Uh, yeah. Alex had wanted to take the Russian name Yekaterina, but Nicholas insisted on her taking the name Alexandra so there could be a second Nicholas and Alexandra like his great-grandparents, Tsar Nicholas I, and his wife, Alexandra. Mm. But like the rest of his reign... Foreshadowing. Sorry. But like, yeah, but like the rest of the reign... His reign, his coronation led to tragedy. Half a million citizens had come to Moscow to watch the coronation, and there was free food and entertainment. Always a treat in Russia at this time. And gifts for everyone! Yay! Except there was a rumour that spread very quickly there wasn't enough food or gifts for everyone. And so there was a stampede to the food tables, and around 1,200 people died in the crush. Um, Nicholas and Alexandra were horrified by this, but their ministers advised them to act like nothing had happened. When they visited the area later to greet the people, all evidence had also been covered up. Like, cleared away. Mm, Um, And despite their distress, they were made to attend a ball that night. And everyone was like, how fucking rude of them to go to Mm -hmm. this ball where people have just died. And, like, apparently Alexandra was in tears at the ball. She was so upset. And they were like, oh, they're at the ball. Fuck them. Um, So even though the government did distribute aid to the victims of the crush and their families, um, this earned the new czar the nickname of Nicholas the Bloody. It's really, like, it's going to be the recurring theme of their rule. We cannot understate both how poorly prepared Nicholas was for the job of being czar, and neither can we understate how big the Russian Empire was and how much it needed a good manager. You, to quote Orlando Figgs, Figgs? Figgs? Orlando. The man who wrote naughty Amazon reviews for his competitors' books, <gasps> um, he said you'd have to be a genius to run the Russian Empire, and you would. And mm. Nicholas was not a genius. He was not. Uh, so, the giantness of the Russian Empire is best described in two terms. One, Russia is simultaneously the largest country in both Asia and Europe, which is pretty impressive. And two, Nicholas's list of titles was as follows, and I can't believe you've given me this bit. 
It's because I got that really good mulligan list. Cars. The full titles of Nicholas II were Emperor and Autocrat of all the Russians, Tsar of Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir Novgorod, Kazan, Astrakhan, Ast- Astrakhan, yep, Poland, Siberia, the Tauric Chersonese, and Georgia, Lord of Skov, Grand Prince of Smolensk, Lithuania, Volnia, Poldo- Podolia, and Finland, Prince of Estonia, Livonia, Courland, and Semigalia. Belostok, Karolinia, Tava, Yugulia, Perm, Vyatka, Bulgaria, and other lands. Lord and Grand Prince of Nizhiny, Novgorod, and Chernigov, ruler of Ryazan, Polostok, Rostov, Yaroslav, Belosorov, Yugoria, Obdoria, Kondia, Vitebsk, Mitzelslavl, and the Northern Lands. Lord and Sovereign of the Iverian. Catalinian and Kabardinian lands and of the Armenian provinces, hereditary lord and suzerain, suzerain of the Circassian princes and Highland princes and others, lord of Turkestan, heir to the throne of Norway, duke of Schleswig, Storman, at the Dith, Marschen and Oldenburg. Can I just back up there? I love that when they talk about him being um, Lord and Sovereign of the Catalinian and Carbadinian lands in the Armenian provinces, that sounds like Kardashian because <laughs> the Kardashians are Armenian. Makes sense. Yeah. So, also, head of the Kardashians. Head of the Kardashians. <sighs> but. Okay. <laughs> well done, by the way. Thank you. Everybody, please applaud me. And I apologise to any Russians listening. Or anybody else covered in this list. It's pretty much <laughs> half of Europe. List. So, we're not here to talk about Nicholas. Alexandra struggled with many aspects of life in Russia. She'd only just started learning Russian, and so she and Nicholas spoke English to each other. She was also confused by the pecking order at the Russian court, which meant she was technically outranked by the Dowager Empress. Alexa- Wait, so her mother-in-law. Yeah. Alexandra's shyness was confused with aloofness, and perhaps people weren't wrong to take it that way, as Alexandra did have some very specific and firm ideas on how to rule an empire. Alexandra took to being an unimpressed empress, in part because she was so shy. People thought she was a bitch. She only tended to appear at court and social functions when she really needed to, and always looked very uncomfortable. Her grandmother reached out with some advice. Quotes again. Why didn't we get voice actors this week? Legitimately, I thought about the muse has taken me. (laughs) Fair. Okay, so, Queen Victoria wrote to her granddaughter, Quote, there is no harder craft than our craft of ruling. I have ruled for more than 50 years in my own country, which I have known since childhood, and nevertheless, every day I think about what I need to do to retain and strengthen the love of my subjects. How much harder is your situation? You find yourself in a foreign country, a country which you do not know at all, where the customs, the way of thinking, and the people themselves are completely alien to you. And nevertheless, it is your first duty to win their love and respect. However, even though this woman is in charge of most of the planet at this point, Alexandra knew better. And she replied, You are mistaken, my dear grandmama. Russia is not England. Here we do not need to earn the love of the people. The Russian people revere their czars as divine beings from whom all charity and fortune derive. As far as St. Petersburg society is concerned, that is something which one may wholly disregard. The opinions of those who make up this society and their mocking have no significance whatsoever. Oh, Alexandra, no. Alexandra! I. <laughs> Alexandra also encouraged Nicholas to be more forceful and decisive. Be more autocratic than Peter the Great and sterner than Ivan the Terrible. No. That's uh, not a good advice, Alexandra. It's not. 
Uh, she felt that their feelings were also those of Russia, as in her and Nicholas's feelings were those of Russia. Now, this wasn't completely without precedent. The lower classes of Russia especially were encouraged to think of the Tsar and Tsarina as their parental figures. Any anger about issues in Russia should be aimed at the bureaucracy or the military or the local nobles, not the Tsar's family. Now, some argue Figs, Fidge, Orlando, Orlando Figs, included that it was Tsarina Alexandra who was the real ruler of Russia just before the revolution. So, what do you think about that? I don't know if you can steer a rudderless ship headed towards a communist hmm? iceberg in the middle of a war zone, especially if you're 22 when you marry the captain. That is a very good point. Yeah. So, Alexandra did have one official job, and that job was baby cannon. Boom. Unfortunately, by the standards of the Russian court then, and the Daily Mail now, <laughs> she did a terrible job, having four girls before the famous, famous little Tsarevich, Alexei. But let's back up. First off, pregnancy in the late 1890s and early 1900s was dangerous for any woman, from the Siberian wastes to the St. Petersburg palaces. Olga, Alexandra and Nicholas's eldest daughter, was born after a 14-hour labour that involved a forceps delivery in 1895. No, That's really traumatising. Let me just close my legs. Oh, God. And I, what did forceps look like in the 1890s? Like, do you want to know? I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't want to know. Probably a bit of asbestos. Um, so those some at court were disappointed that Alexandra had not delivered a male heir. What a bitch! <laughs> Nicholas and Alexandra were actually were really happy with their little fat baby. Aww. She was a very fat baby. Um, saying that if she was a boy, she would have belonged to Russia, but because she was a girl, she belonged to them. Which is, I That's think, sweet. really, really lovely. That's sweet. Um, they called her a gift from God. Now, we're not going to do go into detail on all the Nikolaevna girls, because one day I'll do an episode on all four of them. One day. Not this day, because if we try and cover all five Romanov women in this episode, it comes out like Spice Girls, and <laughs> Olga was the nice one. Tatiana was the next child born two years later. She was the motherly one. Mother Spice. <laughs> Again, despite her being a girl, disappointing, Nicholas was overjoyed while Alexandra cried. Olga and Tatiana tended to be paired together, and when they were a little older, they shared rooms. Alexandra wanted her daughters brought up like the British middle class, the way she kind of was. Cold baths, small beds and no fuss, stiff upper lip, all that chap chap. The next daughter to arrive was Maria. Maria was flirty spice. And the last one was born a hundred... <laughs> And the last daughter was born a hundred odd years ago, yesterday, on June 18th, 1901. Today she is the most famous Grand Duchess because of the aforementioned excellent movie, but at the time was kind of a disappointment because of her sex. You know we're talking about Anastasia. Anastasia! Anastasia was cheeky spice. Lively and mischievous. But alas, she was a girl. Alexandra was really desperate for a boy, like so many women before her and since. Also, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the show... But um, it's the sperm that determines the sex of the baby. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all Nicholas's fault, and more importantly, like it's Henry VIII's fault, which mm -hmm. makes the, the death of his wives and Alexandra's desperation for not having a yep. boy so much more tragic because so, it's nothing to do with them. Like they didn't. It just makes me really sad. Yeah. Anyway, so they were so desperate for a boy. Alexandra turned to a mystic man who was named Drumroll. Philippe Nazir Vachot. Not the name I was expecting. Who could use magnets to change the sex of a oh, baby Philippe. in utero. That's not how it works. If this sounds like bullshit, it's because it is. Nicholas organised for Philippe to become a state councillor so we could have easier access to them, um, despite his mother, sister and sister-in-law being like, Nikki, Alexandra, please, this guy's clearly an ancestor of Pete Evans. <laughs> Stay the fuck away from him. And by December 1901, it actually seemed Alexandra was again pregnant. Also, shout out to Nicholas and Alexandra for, like, keeping up Queen Victoria and Albert's, like, 
Records. <laughs> going good. Hoping that my students are listening to this. Philippe did his magnet thing over her tum tum, and it was like sacre bleu. I promise you, Le Bebe is a boy. But in August 1902, it was clear that Alexandra had never been pregnant. In on August 19th, 1902, Alexandra went through some kind of birth-like experience where she expelled a lump of flesh. So we now call this a molar pregnancy. It's when like the egg sort of flicks off, but like mutates. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to imagine the magnets didn't help with that. They, it, they did nothing. <laughs> the, the magnets did nothing at all. I assume though she's already had four successful pregnancies. Mm. Who there were probably other miscarriages. Yeah. Um, so that's not going to help. And I don't know if getting pregnant like less than six months after you have your child is going to be exactly a healthy uterus. Because Anastasia no, yeah. was at six months old yeah. at this point. Yeah. So, um, so to save court, though, the doctors actually to published... To save face. The, yeah, to save face, sorry. The doctors published a bulletin saying the Empress had had a miscarriage, like a normal miscarriage. So this exposed Philippe as a quack. I know. Please I'm calm down. I'm so it's, shocked. Hannah, stop. I just, stop. I can't believe this happening. And he was sent back to France. Um, Just before he left, though, he was like, oh, if you pray to Seraphim of Seraph, he'll give you a son. And then he hon-honed his way out of their <laughs> lives and escaped a brutal death in the revolution in the process. Look, good for you, <laughs> Both the Tsarina and Tsar were desperate for a boy, though they were very proud of and loving towards their daughters. In 1903, they sponsored the canonisation of this seraphim guy, who hadn't yet qualified for sainthood. He'd been a monk, but none of his supposed miracles had been verified. He didn't get the blue tick on Twitter. Nicholas ordered seraphim to be canonised, and then they swam in a river that seraphim had also swum in decades before. That's how it works. And in 1904, Alexandra was pregnant. And on August 12th, 1904, she gave birth and shook the chloroform haze off long enough to ask if it was a boy. And it was. However, we all know how this goes. On cutting the umbilical cord, the new baby wouldn't stop bleeding and lost up to an eighth of his blood in two days. So though Alexandra had given the Russian people the male heir they so desperately craved, she had also given the heir what Nicholas's sister called the English disease. Rude. Like it was a known issue. Mm. To protect Alexei and limit instability, the true nature of Alexei's condition was sworn to absolute secrecy. By the way, I switch between Alexei and Alexei all the time. Just Yeah, they're the same person. The horror of Alexei's condition, which is today very manageable, by the way, drove Alexandra further into her mystical and religious fervour as she prayed for a cure for Alexei or sought out someone who could heal him. The situation was made even more complicated when Russia was absolutely trounced by the Empire of Japan in the 1904-1905 Russia-Japanese mm-hmm. War, which everyone thought the Russians would win, but they didn't, and then they lost, and it was bad. They lost bad. I love a military history podcast. Oh, getting into the into the <laughs> into the serious issues. It was bad because it revealed how outdated and useless the Russian military and navy was. It was bad because the Russians said some really racist shit about the Japanese, Shock. and it was bad for Europe because they began looking at the Japanese Empire and sweating slightly. It's also argued that elements of the Tsar's reaction to the war and the defeat were made worse because he was distracted by his new son. The presence of Alexei served to calm some aspects of the social situation in Russia, but the distress of his condition meant, in addition to Alexandra becoming, how should we put it, a uh, resident of Byron Bay, A resident of Byron Bay. (laughs) Her health also suffered. She's popped out five kids in less than a decade. One's a haemophiliac. She's got chronic shyness. She wasn't doing so good. For the rest of her life, Alexandra became quite withdrawn and spent a lot of time at the family house in Sarsko Salo. Sorry, the, the it's a house. It was a palace called Alexander Palace. So we can say they were at Alexander Palace. The family house in Alexander Palace. Secluded away from the court and the masses. This didn't help her popularity. She ate very little and took medicine made from Adonis Vinalis for her health. 
Yeah, so I looked that up actually, and it's a cardio stimulant. Oh no! So if you're very anxious, That's not I'm good. getting anxious just thinking about taking a cardio stimulant. <laughs> and my heart is pounding. Yeah, so it's probably not good to take. Yeah. Um, though his sisters got up to some nonsense. Um, Alexei was coddled and spoiled by his parents because the life expectancy of someone with hemophilia was around 13, which he did die at 13. The hemophilia wasn't really the cause. It's like his, like his yeah, he's, uncle who died long yep, ago. It's, yep. it's not the hemophilia that kills you. Um, um, the hemophilia... Yeah, so Alexandra especially, and Nicholas too, was afraid to refuse him anything in case he threw a tantrum and hurt himself, and, like threw himself on the carpet. And because yep. what happens with hemophilia, often it's not actually like bleeding from your skin. Yeah, you get subcutaneous bleeding, bleeding and you're, you swell. Mm. And you get these gross like tumours and lesions that are really, really uncomfortable and... Um, Really, really distressing. Yeah. And they also... The Bolsheviks did this. They experimented with blood... They haven't figured out blood transfusions yet at mm. all. They haven't figured out blood types. Mm-mm. So if you had hemophilia back then, you were fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're fucked. Yep. That's the science. So let's zoom out now. And um, we'll try something different for this episode. So we both had a... Let me have a sip of water. This is the discussion portion. I'm We've, stressed about this. You want me to remember things. <laughs> We both studied the Russian Revolution at high school. We did go to different high schools, though. And we studied it in the same year, 2011. Uh, and since then, we both studied different forms of 20th century history. Which is yes, true. This is true. So I thought we could, like, revert to our 2011 selves and say what we think the 2011 version of ourselves would think is the key force that caused the February Revolution in Russia. So 2011, Hannah. You look so embarrassed. <laughs> I'm so stressed. <laughs> what do you think is the key thing that made the February 1917 revolution happen? Mm. Okay, so I remember more about the French Revolution in Year Twelve history. Well, we're not talking about the French Revolution. I know, that's the one I remember. Uh, I want to say the Cold War now. <laughs> yeah, not the Revolution. <laughs> it's actually the Cold War in the fifties. <laughs> so I feel like okay, twenty eleven me would have said it was a combination of Nicholas being a incompetent, incompetent ruler um, and just the backwardsness of Russia. Meaning, like, conditions for revolution were strife because everyone's stressed and hungry and sad, and that's always a precursor to a revolution. Okay, cool. Um, and when you've got an incompetent leader in charge who's not doing anything to fix people being stressed, hungry, and sad. And cold. And cold. Because Russia. Yep. Then if someone comes along who's like, hey, maybe we should get a better deal than this, then you're going to be like, that sounds That toy. sounds really I good. like it. I like being woman fed. Yeah. So, Nicola. Yeah. 2011 Nicola. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I just love Fallout Boy. People don't get it. They're just really deep. Other than that, 2011 Nicola. Yeah. What do you think about the Russian Revolution? Um, well, I reckon it was the war. It really focused those issues that we, like, saw that you were discussing with regards to the social situation in Russia, but it really magnified it. The absence of all those men meant people were even hungrier and colder than normal, and it just focused those issues of inequality. So I would actually say the war, which also in turn exposed the incompetence of Nicholas as a leader. That's a very good answer, 2011 Nicola. So now in terms of 2021, Hannah and Nicola... You had to do a lot of research about Cold War activism. I do. Um, so has your perspective in 2021 changed on the causes of the Russian Revolution? Look, probably not much. I haven't Valid. Thought, I haven't thought about the, the causes of the Russian Revolution in a very long time. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, as I said before, my point in history, it's done. It's, it's done. Tested. Yeah. So, like, I deal more with the ideology of why it happened, I guess I would say. And so, yeah, I... I I would say it's still the same kind of thing. Yeah. Competent ruler, unhappy people, the war is a good point, mm. all combines. Yeah. 2021, Nicola? 
2020 on Nicola has changed her mind on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about the war, because let's be real, my love is World War I. <laughs> um, but the 1861 Alexander II... I always mix up by Alexander's. The freeing of the serfs in 1861, because yes. that does free up a contingent of peasants to go primarily to St. Petersburg and Moscow mm-hmm. to become permanent factory workers, mm-hmm. which then gives rise to this permanent base of industrial labour who will become key in driving the revolution forward in St. Petersburg. Yeah. But other than that, I still come back to the war. Like I know Was Alexander II, Nicholas II's grandfather, was he the one yes. that made all these reforms and then he got brutally murdered? Moited. And some and so guy then... called Vladimir Ulyanov's brother actually tried to assassinate him too. <laughs> oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Though. And so then because his, like, so Nicholas's... Nicholas II's dad, because yeah. his dad was murdered, went complete opposite direction. Yeah, he was very conservative. No reform. Everyone's Conservative shit. autocrat. If yeah. we give in to the demands, they'll kill us. And so that's kind of where Nicholas II yeah. was coming from. But you from. cannot forget this element of, like, God made us rulers. Yes. And that's something I think we need to bear in mind the whole way through. And that has... It was everywhere in Europe, that belief. Pretty much. Sort but, of, but... Not at this time. Like, yeah. it was an old thing. It's a vestige of this old system yeah, that somehow survived. Nowadays, though, I have to approach it slightly differently again as yes. a teacher. Because um, I spend a lot of time talking around the hideous shit that was happening to people. Um... And how they result, how it like came to happen, yeah. and particular cruelties and realities of the situation, because there was a lot of like vigilante justice happening mm-hmm. out in the wastes of Russia, and the cruelties of the Akrana running around with their dog heads. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Let's now go through a basic rundown of the main causes of the revolution as we both understand them now. Yeah. Long term first. So one. The French Revolution. The first one, the second one, and the third one, but mostly the first one. <laughs> Two. Marx and Engels' 1848 book, The Communist Manifesto, and Marx's later work, Das Kapital. Das Kapital! Hey. Number three. Tsar Alexander II's decision to free the Russian serfs in 1861. And now the shorter term ones, which is a non exhaustive list because you could be here for years. Yeah. The assassination of Tsar Alexander II. Assassination. The development of the machine gun and various other forms of weaponry following the Industrial Revolution. The execution of Alexander Ulyanov after his role in the attempt, attempted assassination of Tsar Alexander III. So, is this enough? Yes. Okay. Do you know who Alexander Ulyanov is? Yeah, he was Lenin's brother. Yeah. So, let's get to 1905. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Sunday, bloody Sunday. Yeah. So, funny thing you're singing that. Because there are many, many, many there bloody is. Sundays, and the one I was in first is the Irish one in there's 1972. M- there's more than one in Russia too, isn't there? I believe so, yeah. but this is the most famous one. Yeah. Um, this is a different bloody Sunday. It's January the 22nd, 1905, by the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> so following the 1861 emancipation of the serfs, some peasants had brought up land, others had continued to work as labourers, and others had emigrated, probably. Probably. Why not? Some had emigrated to far-flung places like America, and some backwater place called... Australia! Oh, good day, mate. Good eye. Dosta yeah. done ya, buddy. <laughs> hey, comrade. <laughs> Others simply migrated, moving from Russia's vast rural tracts of land into the cities of St. Petersburg and Moscow. And other cities too, other than St. Petersburg and Moscow, but we're not going to worry about them. The population of St. Petersburg and Moscow exploded overnight. And Nicola has written statistics in capital letters, but we don't have any for you, so you can... Uh, It was like, it went from like 1 million to nearly 2 million in 10 years. (laughs) As with the mass migration of peasants into Britain's cities following the Industrial Revolution, St. Petersburg and Moscow's utilities and slums were not prepared for such an influx of humanity. And the conditions for these peasants who became factory workers were appalling. 
It's little wonder, then, that the growing industrial working class of both Moscow and St. Petersburg would not put up with that shit for long. Stuck in filthy slums in the cities, there wasn't any relief for the workers in the factories. There were absolutely no rights for the workers, and they were treated worse than employees in an Amazon fulfilment centre. Pause for dramatic effect. Their employers paid them appallingly low wages, treated the workers like dogs, and they were forced into long shifts with no breaks and no safety regulation. There's over 100 million peasants, so who gives a shit if one or two or 12 is crushed by machinery? Needless to say, strikes were common, and interestingly, often the strikers would achieve their demands. The leaders of the strikes would often be severely punished, but the demands would be genuinely reviewed, and often employers would be forced to make changes. So, for example, in 1897, after a really intense period of strikes, the working day was set to a leisurely 11 and a half hours. Wow! Join your union! Join your union! Speaking of unions, let's talk about the important one. The Assembly of the Russian Factory and Mill Workers of the City of St. Petersburg. The Assembly of the Russian Factory and Mill Workers of the City of St. Petersburg. Sorry. We're going to call them the Assembly. So, the Assembly had been around for a few years. In 1903, Father... Georgi Gabon, a committed, intelligent, and well-educated Russian Orthodox priest, had become the leader of it. He wanted the assembly to foster a sense of mutual aid, respect, and responsibility between the workers, and help improve the relationship between the workers and their employers. He was a true believer, Georgi Gabon, in the rights of workers and in the Tsar's beneficence to his people. So it's again that idea of, like, anything that's going wrong, it's not the Tsar's fault, it's the bureaucracy, it's the nobility, it's the military, it's the police, it is not the Tsar. Unfortunately, the Assembly had also been thoroughly infiltrated by the Akrana, which were the Tsar's secret police, seeking out rebels who wished to put an end to the Tsar's reign, which, to be fair, there were in the Assembly. In December 1904, a bunch of workers got fired from the Putilov Ironworks because they were members of the Assembly. The factory owners said it wasn't because of that, but let's be real. Yeah. It was. Yeah. These men's co-workers went on strike in protest, and then there was a series of sympathy strikes across the city. By the 21st of January 1905, the city had no electricity and no newspapers, and Gapon and the leaders of the Assembly had drafted a petition, a petition sorry, to present to the Tsar. The petition basically was like, please stop treating us like shit, you are the Tsar, chosen by God to protect us, also can we have an eight-hour workday? Love your people. On January 10, 22nd, 1905... At various points around the city, around 3,000 workers gathered and began to walk towards the Winter Palace, which the Tsar wasn't at, but they didn't know that. They were holding religious icons and singing God Save the Tsar. God save our gracious... I don't know how it goes. Probably not like that. The Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, and all the other pinko lefty communists weren't actually there because the march wasn't political enough for them. so fucking (laughs) Melbourne. So left wing. In the meantime, the authorities had heard of the march being planned and had gathered around 10,000 troops to prevent it. However, as this was Russia in 1905, messages were improperly messengered, orders got mixed up, and so the guards met with various groups of protesters. Some, seeing the peaceful protesters, gave them a wave or joined in. That's nice. Others were ordered to charge on the crowd with their guns, sabres or horses. That's less nice. But the crowds pushed through or ran. There were various attacks throughout the city, all by the troops on unarmed protesters. As some protesters did make their way to the square outside the Winter Palace, about 2,000 troops were called in. Their commander gave the crowd a warning to stop, and then four volleys was fired into the crowd. No one knows how many people were killed on Russia's Bloody Sunday. Modern historians estimate about 1,000 people died of gunshots, sabre wounds, or or were crushed. Being crushed is becoming a theme of Nicholas's reign, foreshadowing for Stalin, I guess. Mm. Just as the attack on the protesters was brutal and swift, so was the Russian people's response. Father Gapon's response kind of exemplifies the feeling. He had been at the very front of the line and he'd only been saved by one of his colleagues, like grabbing him and pulling him out of the way of the gunfire. Yeah. 
He went from holding the Tsar as the representative of God on earth to denouncing him as Nicholas the Bloody. Father Gapon had to flee overseas where he was embraced by both the socialists and the anarchists. That's nice. A year later, after publishing a letter denouncing the Tsar, he was found dead in a cottage in Finland. That's, that's nice. And it's like, did he kill himself or was he murdered? Yeah. But I feel like if the Yolkrana killed him, they would have made an example of it. Yeah, probably. It's a bit subtle for them. It's subtle for Russia. But then you're thinking about it now, too. Yeah. Like, it's I like, would feel pretty guilty. No longer could they separate Nicholas from the cruel, slow indifference of the bureaucracy and the greed of the rest of the nobles. Which is valid, really. Mm. Like, maybe it's not him, but he should have controlled it better. The eventual strikes and violence got so bad that the Tsar had to fold. He released the October Manifesto, allowed the creation of a representative parliament, the Duma, and the press was allowed some small modicum of freedom. But let's return to focus. What was Alexandra doing? Well, she was getting up in Nicholas's business, lecturing him in the business of ruling, telling him which ministers to fire and which to hire. He didn't always listen, but Nicholas was always, was actually an alarmingly agreeable man, considering he's, you know, the, the czar, and should make some actual decisions. Yep. Um, actually, interestingly, there was a saying in the court, um, the most powerful man is Russia, in Russia was always the last man to have spoken to Nicholas, because he would just agree with everything oh, he God, said. Oh, God, yeah, that makes sense. And there's this great story. I can't remember who it was. I believe... It wasn't Solipin. It might have been. He... Nicholas like called him into his office and they talked for two hours and Nicholas was like, You're doing a great job, I love what you're doing, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're wonderful, shaking hands, hugging, like and he comes and this minister like comes home like, Wow, I've done such a good job and he goes to his office and there's a letter from the Tsar saying you're fired. <laughs> and that whole meeting he'd been trying to fire him and he couldn't do it. God, yeah. Like I, I pity surprise. Nicholas. Yeah. And the same time I, I despise him. Yeah, I like You despair at this ineptitude. You, you just want to shake him and be like, do better. It's almost hard to be this incompetent. It's a sense of, they just have no room in their heads for this idea of doubt. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot after listening to Prince Harry's interview with Zach <laughs> Shepard. Because yeah. he's like, you're you're living in this weird bubble. And yeah. it would be even worse yeah. at even this Even more point. bubble. Much more bubble. Like, Nicholas and Alexander at 1,000, I think, believe their own hype. Like, yeah. they, their will is the will of the people. Yeah. And it's just... Like, I, I don't think that... I don't think they were terrible people. Like, yeah. I don't think they were, like... They were great parents. They and weren't, that, like, that makes my heart bleed Stalin-esque... I'm a bad guy. Yeah. But they were just such incompetent rulers. It's just incredible. Like, they were just so bad at they their job. They had no vision for And Russia. they had no comprehension of how bad at their job they were. Yeah, because they, they just don't see other people. I think they don't see anyone else's people. Yeah. They, the peasants are just there to... Pro- you can't be nobles without peasants kind yeah. of thing. They're yeah. just a, a thing that makes yeah. you king. They're just there. Yeah. Um, what else was Alexandra doing? She was worrying about her son. She was worrying about her daughters and marrying them off. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about what she wasn't doing. She wasn't doing Rasputin! <laughs> hey! Regardless what later propaganda or rumours or Rasputin himself had to say. Or so, Bonium. Or Bonium. So, Grigori Rasputin, played to magnificence by Christopher <laughs> Lloyd in the animated film, and utter disturbingness by Tom Baker in the Nicholas and Alexander film. I can't imagine Tom Baker. He's so Rasputin. good. It's so off putting. I don't like it. It's like seeing your granddad naked. He's not actually naked, you just see him shirtless, but it's just like, I don't want to see Doctor Who with his shirt off. I don't like this. Not that Doctor, anyway. Um, so, Rasputin was born in early 1869. Nice. Nice. In fuck Nowhere, Russia. We know very little about Rasputin's early childhood because as he lived in buttfuck nowhere, Russia, very few people in his village could read or write. Like he was in Siberia, yep. you don't get much more buttfuck nowhere than you that. You really don't. He married a woman called Praskovia in 1886 and even when he was doing everything that he did afterwards, um, she remained devoted to him until his death. They had seven children, one of 
of whom three survived adulthood, and one of these kids, Maria, would become his primary biographer and defended his image fiercely. She was also a lion tamer for a time. Wow. Le- Rasputin and Trotsky's kids did some weird shit if they survived. That's wild. In the late 1890s, Rasputin had a religious awakening, or... In other words, he had to leave the town for stealing We shit. don't actually know. He might have genuinely had a religious awakening. Okay. He might have had to get out of town and then had a religious awakening. I, mm. I, I feel like I lean towards the second option. Okay. Either way, he made a bunch of pilgrimages to various holy spaces and monasteries, and in 1897 met a a sort of Russian Orthodox monk, who greatly humbled him and brought him to God. Rasputin spent a few months at the monastery where this starets was, and thought he, and it's thought he learnt to read and write while there. When he got home, he started his own weird little sect in his father-in-law's basement. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me be really clear. He was living with his father-in-law at the time and his wife. (laughs) Sorry. I'm in my basement starting my sect. Come into my basement. (laughs) Rasputin, come up for dinner. No, I'm in my basement starting my sect. I'm on the internet. (laughs) Father-in-law's basement starting his own weird little sect, which quickly became beset with rumours. And a lot of what we know about Rasputin during these years is still that, rumours. He also became a vegetarian teetotaler and would pray often and intensely. By the very early 1900s, as Nicholas and Alexandra were trying so desperately for a boy, Rasputin had become relatively well-known in Siberia as a holy man who could help people with their spiritual crises. Alternatively, he was a cult leader who used his power over his followers to molest female members of his church in the name of God. We don't actually know. I do, again, kind of lean towards the second option. I'm thinking in terms of Jim Jones. Yeah. Who was leader of yeah. Jonestown. Yeah. Um, and I think he believed his own bullshit either way. Yes, I think he believed his own bullshit. But I do think... I think it's... Yeah. I think people are more complicated than we ever tried. And Rice yeah. one of those He's become such a joke. Even before the 90s, like Bernie yes. M. Song. He's such this weird thing that happened. Yeah. Assigning him any kind of human features makes it feel very, very I feel like odd. no one really knows how to understand him. He's, it's so random. Yeah. And it was so random at the court. It's yeah. just so random. <laughs> so random. Oh, my God. So his star rose, and eventually Rasputin came to St. Petersburg after making friends with other men in high places in the church. We know the first time he met Nicholas, which was on November 1st, 1905, because Nicholas wrote it in his diary, calling him a man of God. However, it is disputed when they asked Rasputin to pray for Alexei. Yeah, so um, old mate Orlando, um, who was whinging that people that tell him get high up into universities now, I was like, dude, aren't you like a <laughs> professor at Oxford before you retired? You weren't pushed out. Anyway, Figes is like, it was probably no- November 1905 that they asked him to pray for him. Another male historian is like, maybe it was October 1906. And, but like, knowing what we know of Alexandra's character and her obsession with the health of her son, mm-hmm. I reckon it was actually the first time she fucking looked at Rasputin. Yeah. Uh, like, you can't blame her. Like, I this- feel like she would have jumped from anything that she yeah, could have thought. she like, was desperate. Without and you can't really blame thinking her. about it. Yeah, you can't blame like, her. So Rasputin already had a bit of buzz around him as a folk healer, and though we don't know exactly how or when, Rasputin ingratiated himself with the family and quickly held a ridiculous amount of sway over Nicholas and Alexandra, and he became a member of the court. There's a few theories as to how Rasputin seemed to be able to heal Alexei. One guy, who was a tutor of Alexei, who survived the revolution. Not Alexei, the tutor survived the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> like, all these truths are like, ears pyrrhica. <laughs> your your random theory. Student, like, wait, what? I love it. Like, out of all the kids, the one least likely to survive would be Alexei, both because he was a hemophiliac, but also because he was the presumptive heir. Yeah. They're going to kill any of them. They're going to kill him. Yeah. This tutor bl- claimed Rasputin banned the use of aspirin and other drugs on Alexei. Aspirin is an oh, anticoagulant, yeah. which stops your blood clotting. They didn't know that at the time, so maybe he was just like, no drugs. 
Um, I also wonder if that flower Alexandra would take, the one that gives you yep. a faster heart rate, I bet they were giving it to him as well. And so if you're in like, pulse fast, bad, more yep. blood come out. Yep. Yada, yada, yada. Another theory comes from an incident in 1912. Alexei was in a bumpy carriage and had a really bad subcutaneous hemorrhage in his groin and thigh, a really painful area. He got very sick, delirious, and feverish. Alexandra sat by his bedside and didn't sleep or eat as Alexei begged for death. Preparations, not for the first time, were made for the Tsarevich's death. In a panic, Alexandra rang Rasputin on the telephone and was like, fuck. No, it was a telegram. telegram. I just wrote that really badly. <laughs> In a panic, Alexandra rang Rasputin on the telegram and was like, fuck, stop. Please come back from Siberia right now. Stop. Pray for my son. My son. Stop. And, and Rasputin sent back this quite famous message. God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. End quote. These instructions were relayed, and the next day, Alexei's bleeding stopped. The theory is that the doctors were moving Alexei around too much, which was aggravating his injury and agony and making the blood pump more mm. and move around. Yeah, and to tag onto that theory, Alexandra would sometimes be so overcome when Alexei was sick, she would like sit by him sobbing and pick him up and hold him, which isn't going to help. And then finally, in addition, um, some, including my year 12 history teacher, she theorised that Alexandra's hysterics distressed Alexei as well, yeah. which caused more bleeding, which caused more... Mm-hmm. If Rasputin could calm Alexandra, it would calm Makes sense. And some claim Rasputin used hypnotism. Sure, why not? Yep. However he did it, and I reckon it was a combination of these things, yeah. um, as well as Rasputin's charisma, it's amazing what control you can exert over a room with the right energy. He was seen as a man sent from God to protect the Tsarevich, and he was a favourite of the Tsar and Tsarina, and you can't fucking blame them. Nah. Also, and you, you can't overestimate, like, placebo works yeah. at times. Like, you know, so how much of this was believing he could fix the situation mm. as well? And if the Zarin Zarin are going around believing they've been put by God to rule mm-hmm. Russia, this man has been sent from Russia and he's a peasant, mm-hmm. they're protecting the peasants. Even when Rasputin abused his power and used it to have sex with and assault women around the palace, the Tsar overlooked this. Rasputin was seen as a lecherous evil spirit by many around Russia, and the rumours of him controlling Nicholas and Alexandra, as well as sticking it to Alexandra behind Nicholas's back, spread even further than they usually would, thanks to the loosening of press controls following the 1905 revolution. Oops. (laughs) There was also even rumours that he had molested Olga and Tatiana. People did warn Nicholas of the rumours about Rasputin, and told him to send the mad monk away, but Nicholas though not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, said, better one Rasputin than ten fits of hysterics a day for Alexandra. You know, again, you can't blame him. So if we take a step back there and look at this time in early 20th century Russia, in hindsight, it looks like the revolution was inevitable. They were on the train tracks, headed over a cliff. An unpopular royal couple, a prince with a secret illness, a hideously unpopular and lecherous advisor, the unfinished revolution of 1905. Yes, that. Since allowing the Duma to form, Nicholas had dismissed it multiple times. Oh, Nicholas. The first Duma had been very radical in his views and it's didn't in its views and he didn't like that. It's not real democracy if you can just dismiss it. John Kerr! Yeah, what's this on the train tracks? Oh, it's a small, pleasant little station called the 1913 Tricentenary. But unfortunately then the train tracks go straight over a cliff called World War One. They forgot to finish the bridge. The Romanovs began their rule of Russia in 1613 with Michael I. As such, 1913 was a momentous year for the Russian Empire and their imperial family, marking 300 years of continuous rule. Twenty czars, father to son or father to brother or nephew. Who's counting? Father to stable boy. (laughs) But little did they, Romanovs, know, as January 1st, 1913 struck, the end of the 300-year dynasty was less than five years away. I'll be going by the old style calendar or the new style calendar because then it will be like... January 1st sounds better and we're going with that for dramatic effect. Royal Bebez 
Marriages, divorces, deaths of royal consorts are often a time when royal families get a lot of good press and attention, and in this way the tricentenary was no different. It was a time of celebration, but also a time to put the past behind them. The mass crush at Nicholas's coronation? Forget it! Alexandra having the gall to have four girls and be German while she did it? Forget it! The city of St. Petersburg was decked out with electric lights and there were balls and theatrical performances. Grand Duchess Olga, the oldest daughter, even had some of her first social engagements. It was the first time the Tsar had gone around in public view since 1905. That revolution? Forget it! However, Alexandra's known issues, her shyness, her exhaustion, coupled with the stress of dealing with Alexei, meant the celebrations put a lot of strain on her. The family toured from St. Petersburg through various historical parts of the Russian countryside and ended up at Moscow, which was the city where Michael I had been crowned as the first Romanov Tsar. Alexandra often left balls and performances early, which people made out to be rudeness and they resented it even more. Her stress wasn't helped by an outbreak of typhoid, which Grand Duchess Tatiana had also caught in Moscow. Typhoid is a bacterial disease spread through usually kind Finally, of during a ceremony at Moscow, when it came time for the family to move from the carriage to the cathedral, Alexei had to be carried as he had swelling in his legs. This just led to further rumour and pity for the boy's condition, and anger at Alexandra because it was probably her well, fault. Well, to be fair, in this case it was. Any goodwill that came out of the Romanov tricent tricentenary mostly came to the Tsar, Alexei, and the Grand Duchesses, not Alexandra. And things are about to get more complicated. World War One. Uh, which has a million YouTube videos on how it started, and I think we also covered it in our Matahari episode, but what you need to know is... In this case, Nicholas's cousin was George V, the King of England. He was also cousins with Kaiser Wilhelm, the Emperor of Germany and the King of Prussia. That's one person, by the way, Kaiser Wilhelm. By 1919, Nicholas would be dead and the Russian Empire gone. Kaiser Wilhelm would have abdicated and the German Empire would be gone, and Russia had gone Prussia. wherever it was. Oh yeah, Prussia had gone wherever it was, the Prussia had went. So apart from the cousin thing, um, which Horrible Histories did a really cute song on, um, the other thing you need to know is that Russia had a long-standing tie with France, which meant when France went to war on behalf of Britain and Belgium, Russia got dragged in. Russia had the biggest army in the world, which is a sentence you say a lot regarding Russia in World War One and Two, And a sentence we have said before on this podcast. Russia had the biggest army in the world. However, just like the Russian bureaucracy, the Russian army was a mess. Not enough guns or shoes, and but that was okay because it wasn't enough bullets either. And the um, soldiers were poorly trained. In some early battles, the Imperial Russian Army, the IRA. Mm. No, nope. nope, we can't call it that. Um, uh, the Imperial Army of Russia... Through luck and numbers and homegrown advantage, saw some victories against the Imperial German Army or the IGA. We also can't call them that. Um, early victories <laughs> gave way to stalemates and then embarrassing defeats, and I gave myself this bit because of the wonderful names involved. In August 1915, Nicholas, angered at the military losses, fired the commander of the Russian Army, Nikolai Nikolaevich, <laughs> and installed himself as the Supreme Commander in Chief of the Russian Army. Alexandra cheered him on from the sidelines, saying this showed his absolute authority and control over the fate of Russia. And I used to claim I was named after Nikolai Nikolaevich. When actually I'm named after Nikki Lauda. I was just... No, you're not. <laughs> I was just to say that's you in a past life. <laughs> then Nikolai Nikolaevich was six and a half feet tall. <laughs> Checks out. Then chairman of the, by this point, the fourth Duma, a dude also named Michael, wrote to Nikolaevich and was like, quote, the fuck dude. It feels like you have abandoned the people of Russia in our hour of need and also left your wife, who is German, in charge of the empire and she doesn't have a fucking clue what she's doing because she thinks yours and her will is the same as that of Russia and also did you know that our soldiers have to ration their bullets? They only get three a day. That quote probably sounds better than the original Russian. Probably. But yes, while Nicholas was off playing commander, which also meant every time the Russians lost a battle, he bore the blame for the failure, Alexandra was large and in charge of Russia and Rasputin had Alexandra's ear. And together, they were like, hey, 
what if we fuck some shit up? Are these real quotes? <laughs> that one is basically what the Russian people, especially those starving and freezing, were saying. They thought that due to Alexandra's heritage, she would betray them to Germany, even though Alexandra hated Kaiser Wilhelm. Like, she, he, she on, like, also a voted for she, she, him. Well, she married Nicholas, obviously. Yeah. Um, Does that mean she fucked her cousin? She is! <laughs> Nicholas is her cousin! <laughs> They're all cousins! Though Alexandra and old Grand Tatiana worked as nurses for the war effort, Alexandra's role here was more symbolic and the people publicly showed their disdain to her. One soldier called her a German bitch while she was inspecting an ambulance. Rude. In the political field, Alexandra struggled, sometimes due to the guidance of Rasputin. She would hire and fire ministers, and in 16 months she changed Minister of War three times, the Prime Minister four times, and the Minister of the Interior five times. It's like being back... With the Labour Party and the Liberal Party like four years ago. <laughs> now, though, many aspects of the Russian bureaucracy were inefficient and ridiculous. They already were, but even more so. Some members were skilled, and these skilled members went out the door, often because they had spoken out against Rasputin, who would then advise Alexandra to boot them out. This led to further speculation that she was sabotaging the war effort for the Germans, which she wasn't, at least not deliberately. Even if Nicholas had stayed in St. Petersburg... Now called Petrograd. Yes, that. Um, by this point, revolution was inevitable. World War One was the push that history needed to make it happen. Little Lenin quote in there for you guys. <laughs> in addition to repeated humiliating defeats, the Russian army was shoeless, gunless, bulletless and struggling. With the absence of young men, those left behind on the farms and in the city struggled to fill the void. 15 million men, over three times the entire population of Australia at that point, were deployed to the war effort. Any food harvested was first sent to the front for the soldiers, but often it wouldn't even make it there due to the piss-poor rail system or the lack of train engineers or even strikes. People in the cities were starving even as food rotted in railway cars unable to be brought to the cities. And it was all that German bitch Alexandra's fault. But not really. But it wasn't helping. More than once, Nicholas's siblings asked Alexandra to send Rasputin away so at least the, the reputation of the family could be saved, but she refused. And again, you can't blame her because she thinks he's saving she thinks he's saving her son. Oh, they could at least be more like private about oh, it, yeah. I guess. Like, there's things they probably could there's things oh, they definitely could They could have, could have done things much better. But. They could have like bloody adopted. <laughs> the winter of nineteen sixteen to nineteen seventeen is infamous as one of the coldest in living memory. On the Western Front, where most of us at Moore are home with World War I history, frostbite and gangrene were ravaging the soldiers. It was even worse in Russia, the Eastern Front, because Russia is already, as they say, cold as balls. <laughs> Nicholas and his military advisers decided to have a make-or-break spring offensive to bring about a decisive victory in the war. Moving extra men to the lines via train meant that there was even less trains to bring food to the cities. People were hungry cold and getting colder and getting hungrier. And there was also no fuel for the fires, so they were also getting even colder! Sorry. Oh, and Rasputin was murdered. And it wasn't as difficult as people claim. And that's literally all we're going to say on it. Yeah. Suckers! The Tsar received warnings from the Okhrana, from the chairman of the Fourth Duma, and from the British ambassador to Russia, that revolution was in the air. You could smell it. Beautiful. Keep going. <laughs> and Alexandra was by herself. Let her tell it. <laughs> A lot of people claim the main march that kicked off the February Revolution was the one on International Women's Day in Petrograd. But a few days before that, Deputilov Steelworks had locked 20,000 of their workers out over a pay dispute. The rest of the workers there had gone on strike. On February 23rd, International Women's Day, thousands of women marched through the city demanding bread and an end to the war. That's all you want out of life. Bread and an end to war. Look, that's what I want out of life. Over the ensuing days, the marches continued, and by February 25th... Happy birthday, Alice! There was a quarter of a million workers on strike in Petrograd alone. 
Out of a population of around 2 million. Probably over 2 million by that point. But yeah. a lot of them are frozen to death, so you know. Nicholas told his men in Petrograd to suppress the disorder. While a- Alexandra told Nicholas, basically, if the doom behaves itself, everyone will calm down. The following day... That one do this bit. The following day, February 26th, was said by my man, Leon Trotsky, to be the most decisive in this revolution, as it was when the soldiers mentioned putting down the protesters truly began to join the strikes in large numbers. Solidarity. Once you've lost the army, it's over. Yeah. Angered, the Tsar ordered the Duma to dissolve because he thought it was their fault. Um, <laughs> but the Duma, some members refused and they formed a provisional committee. By the 27th of February, the workers controlled the entire city of Petrograd, but for the Winter Palace, the site of the Bloody Sunday Massacre 12 years before, and the telegraph system. Workers ran through the city and released political prisoners and ordinary criminals. Then they set fire to police stations and jails and government records. They always go straight for the government records, mm-hmm. and I, for one, admire that. Alexandra told Nicholas that he needed to do something and that something would involve concessions, which is like the one bit of good advice she ever gave him. Nicholas was frozen. The Provisional Committee declared themselves the Provisional Government. On March 1st, Nicholas tried something, which was new for him. Good job, Nicholas. He approved the creation of the Provisional Government and began the 600-kilometre journey back to Petrograd to try and sort out what had happened. On March 2nd, his train was stopped by revolutionary soldiers and he was informed by the Duma and advised by his officers that he should abdicate in favour of his son, Alexei. The idea was, of course, Alexei could be a puppet czar, a figurehead monarch, but when Nicholas found out he'd not be allowed to stay with Alexei, he abdicated for both of them and made his brother, Grand Duke Michael, the czar. Michael peaced out. Valid, Michael. You cannot blame him for one second. And he abdicated the following day. A boy! (laughs) I'm out, mate. And that was it. 304 years of Romanov's splutters out because there wasn't enough... And an Austrian got shot by a Serb in Bosnia. Yeah. Please note the absence of any and all famous communist figures in this revolt. Like, I believe Trotsky was hanging around, but he's just writing his diary like, holy shit, I wish (laughs) Lenin was here. Lenin, in January that year, there will not be a revolution in my lifetime. (laughs) During all this, Alexandra had been at Alexander Palace at Zaskozello with her children. She wrote to the Duma and asked if they could send some security to protect them. Her guards would come to wear secure would come to wear handkerchiefs around their wrists to show they were with the Duma and protecting them. She also received a message from Nicholas that he'd abdicated, and he wrote, "I'll take up dominoes again in my spare time." Oh, Nicholas! I do wonder if that's him trying to like be like, "Look, we'll be a family. We can have quality family time. Let's play board games. It's yeah. fine." Well, they had a lot of time for board games. Um, she and the family were under house arrest there, and eventually the former Tsar Nicholas joined them. Alexandra was interviewed by the interim leader of the nation, Alexander Kerensky, who asked her if she was a German spy and what Rasputin's influence had been over her and Nicholas and so on. Kerensky actually left the interview believing that Alexandra truly had believed that Rasputin was a man of God and only wanted what was best for Russia and the royal family. So then the question becomes this. What are you going to do with the Romanovs? At first, the family was kept under house arrest. But by August 1917, they were moved to a region of Siberia called Tobolsk. Tobolsk? Tobolsk. 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 Tobolsk, at this point, was generally quite calm and was more sympathetic to the royals. The cities and regions of central Russia, on the other hand, were places of revolutionary violence and ferment. Now, the revolution had been in February, and the nation had since moved to a sort of holding pattern as they organised general elections. But many, especially in Petrograd, felt that things weren't happening fast enough. Time to get the Romanovs out. But it wouldn't save them. Alexandra dealt with this relatively well despite her nervous condition. And the general hope was that the Romanovs would eventually be moved to, say, England, where she and Nicholas's cousin was king, or to France. But George V couldn't or wouldn't accept them. France was reluctant to take in a family rumoured to be sympathetic to the Germans. It's also been theorised that the reason they were moved to Siberia was the Provgov... <laughs> That's how 
Provin- it. I write it by note. The provincial government. Provisional. Provisional. Sorry. Provincial. Oops. Provisional government was hoping to slowly get the Romanovs out of Russia via the Trans-Siberian Railway, which I'd like to do one day. I would too. This, however, would have been t- would have taken them through in Ekaterinburg, which had a lot of Bolsheviks, who had by then turned up. About <laughs> time. And were turning up the dial on the revolutionary discourse. Peace, bread, land, and all power to the Soviets. Alexandra found a lot of strength through God during this point. They were there in October, and whether the October Revolution or coup, fight me. Um, but then it's then the tide truly began to turn against the Romanovs. As with the King and Queen of France during the French Revolution take one, when, you're, when you've deposed a system of government but the living symbols of that government are hanging around, that gives people pause. Mm. Hey, what things really that bad under the Romanovs? Not to mention, the Volmazar and Tsarina were something to rally people under. Because after the um, October coup revolution... <laughs> coup revolution... <laughs> I like Coop Evolution. Like Russia basically... Do not quote that in your exam, kids. Do it. No. Russia basically pulled out of World War One after the Coop Evolution. It smoothed its hair back, took a deep breath, and plunged back into the Russian Civil War. Mm-hmm. There were many factions, including a Czech contingent and a British union, unit that included a bunch of Aussies. For more information, check out The Anzacs Who Signed On For War or Anzacs and Archangel See The Show Notes. We're <laughs> now going to talk about the Russian Civil War in detail today because shit is... We'll come back to that. Can I tell you bit. something really gross that I told Mum last night? She got kind of like really upset. Mm. You probably know this. Um, sometimes, at least once, when the Red Army would capture white generals, who will explain who they are in a minute, they would nail their epaulets to their shoulders. Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the two main groups you need to know about. Um, it's just everyone take a breath. <laughs> the two main groups you need to know about are the Bolshevik-backed revolutionary Red Army um, and the conservative two monarchy restorationist White Army. There was also the Greens, but Adam Bant wasn't there, so the Greens are actually the Czech Foreign Legion. Once the Bolshevik insurrection toppled the provisional government and Alexander Kerensky, the Romanovs knew they would be in for a bad time. Red Army forces moved Nicholas, Alexandra and their daughter Maria to Yekaterinburg in early 1918. Yekaterinburg had long since been a Red stronghold. Alexei was too sick to be moved from their previous house, and so Olga, Tatiana and Anastasia stayed with him. Their new guards told Nicholas and Alexandra to open all their luggage to be searched. And Alexandra was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Nicholas was like, look, usually everyone has been quite polite and respectful to us. And the guard said, mate, you're not under provisional government now. This is an army time. Why are we speaking English? (laughs) (laughs) They warned him that if if they didn't obey, Nicholas would be removed from the family. And then if they refused again, he'd be put to hard labor. Alexandra complied. Eventually, in May, the rest of their family joined them in Yekaterinburg. Do you remember what Alexandra wanted her name to be when she was coronated and brought into the Russian office? Yekaterina. Yeah. yeah. I just find that really weird. Yeah. Here, Alexandra's mental health broke. She was never the stablest woman, but their treatment by the Red Army soldiers and the constant uncertainty of what would happen the next day completely shattered her foundations. Under the guard of the provisional government, they'd had relative freedom under their house arrest, but under their new captors, they were treated very differently. They were kept mostly in one small room. All requests had to go through the local Red Army commandant, who was called Alexander um, Avadayev. He and his men called Nicholas, Nicholas the blood drinker, and Alexandra was the German bitch. In addition, the, the family were now only called by their given name and patronomic, the Russian surname. So it was Nikolaevich for all the kids, and for, Ale- for Nicholas, his name, last name was now Alexandrovich. For his dad. Yep. The family were only permitted one hour outside each day in a small garden under heavy guard. But it was really hard to see out of this garden. The Reds had a massive high fence built around what they had begun to call the House of Special Purpose. Mm, that's not a good name. Yeah. So they had this massive fence built around it so you couldn't see out. 
um, and you couldn't see in. The Romanovs needed to ask to use the toilet and they were forbidden from looking out of the windows, which were eventually painted over or covered with newspapers. Alexandra spent most of her time sitting in a chair in a detached state, reading the Bible or the works of St. Seraphim, the saint she believed had given her her beloved son. Anastasia could sometimes make her mother laugh, but otherwise she remained withdrawn and dis distressed. Alexei still could not walk. He had a bleed in his upper thigh and had to be carried everywhere on or in a wheelchair. But he was looking a little better. At night, the family would play cards or read together. They weren't allowed letters, and if the Reds did let them have newspapers, they were outdated and censored ones, censored by the Bolshevik press. At some point during their imprisonment, the Romanov women, Alexandra, Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia, had started to sew their valuables into their clothes, hems and corsets, including jewellery and gems. Actually, I was just reading a little bit more on this this morning, and Maria didn't have any sewn into her underwear. Oh. Uh, and they think it's because she had a flirtation with the guard. So there's this little question of, like, did the family not tell her to do it because they were worried she might tell the guards mm -hmm. what they were doing. They also had pillowcases. They had four servants with them who also died. I didn't really go into detail on the servants. I apologise for that. Um, but they also had pillowcases full of jewels as well. Yeah. Um, so on July 13th, the order came from... Well, sure. Trotsky's diary claims that Lenin ordered the executions himself to prevent the White Army being able to rally around the Romanovs. Others argue it was a local decision that Lenin later approved of in order to look like he'd been in charge the mm -hmm. entire time. Whoever it was, on July 13th, the head of the Ekaterinburg secret police, now called the Cheka, and this is a separate entity of the Ukraina, the Ukraina is gone, it is now the Cheka who are the red secret police, Yakov Yurovsky received the orders to take out the Romanovs and their staff. He quickly tightened security around the house's special purpose and sent away the local staffs. The Romanovs' four servants were kept in the house. Detailed plans were made for the system of execution and disposal of the bodies, but it was severely, severely botched. On the night of July 16th, the family and their four remaining servants were woken up and told they were being evacuated as there was fighting coming to Ekaterinburg. They were told to shelter in the basement as transport was arranged, and this was a relatively familiar experience. Nicholas had to carry Alexei into the basement, and Alexandra asked for two or three chairs so she and Alexei could sit, and they received the chairs. And one of the soldiers said to another soldier, like, outside, they were like, the heir wants to sit while he's killed, being killed. Yeah. The, a lot of the soldiers were actually quite drunk. Yeah. Because they knew what they were about to do. And then Yakov Yurovsky came in with an execution squad and read the order. Nikolai Alexandrovich, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Yilkes was shocked and said, What? What? Yakov Yurovsky repeated the order, and then he and the guards opened fire on the Romanov family and their four servants. Alexandra and Olga tried to cross themselves, but were quickly cut down by bullets. Because the hatred for Nicholas and Alexandra was so strong, they were the first to be killed. Due to the condition of the Red Army's guns, the close quarters and the gems in their clothes, horrifically, most of the children survived and attempted to crawl away to hide in corners, and had to be bayoneted or dispatched with headshots. If you want more details, it's there on the internet, but it was a truly horrific act of cruelty. Yes, yeah, so this comes back to, like, what do we tell kids when we're teaching them about yeah. this stuff? Because there is this thing people do, and I went through this phase too, where you read a lot about really horrible shit that mm -hmm. happened, and I still am very interested in acts like this, and yeah. that's part of my I mean, research. You don't want to sanitise history, but what, because then it loses some of the, you know, the messages the and the oomph, but at the same time, it, if you're teaching it to kids, you don't want to traumatise kids. Yeah, but so. I... It's important, I think, to understand the sheer brutality of what mm -hmm. happened next. And it's finding that line to walk. And it depends on who you're talking to yeah. as well. So the bodies were loaded into a waiting truck. And by the way, this was trying, they were trying to keep it secret. So they had the truck running mm -hmm. outside. Except that there was a guy sitting outside who was like, you could hear the gunshots from miles away. Yeah. Like, they knew what had happened. Um, they took the bodies in the truck to the forest where there was another group of soldiers who thought they were going to be the ones executing the 
family. They were waiting. And they were also drunk. They were all very angry. They didn't mm. get to kill the family. At least two of them molested Alexandra's corpse, and the bodies were all stripped to both search for valuables and to make them less recognisable. In their haste, though, some gems were missed. The bodies were thrown into a pre-selected mine shaft with the hope the water below would hide them. No luck, it wasn't deep enough. The reds dropped sulfuric acid and hand grenades on them to try and bury the bodies, and there was no luck. They pulled the bodies out and burnt them and smashed their faces with rifle butts and rocks before burning them and burying them in two separate graves. Alexei, one of his sisters, was separated from the rest of their family. No one would know the true fate of Nicholas, Alexandra and their children until the 1990s, though there were some rumours and an investigation headed by the White Army. Stalin stomped down on any rumours to do with the Romanovs' fate. Obviously, there were stories that at least one Grand Duchess had survived, either Maria or Anastasia, and there were many famous imposters over the years. In 1979, two Yekaterinburg locals, working off years of hearsay and rumours, located the main grave and exhumed three skulls. But this is Soviet Russia. They couldn't find anyone to help them identify the bones, and so returned them to the soil until Gorbachev brought in Glasnost. Can we actually back up this record? It's not that they no one had the skills to identify the skulls. Yep. They were like, fuck, get those back in the ground yep. right now. We don't want to deal with so, this. Um, do you want to like explain Glasnost? In... Yeah, it's basically Gorbachev was like, uh, what if we still kept communism, but we like talked about it more, yep. and then the Soviet Union fell. Yeah, Glasnost, Pestroika... We'll go into that another time. Yeah. In 1991, the remains were exhumed and brought to St. Petersburg. And in 2007, another group of locals found the second grave, wherein lay Alexei and one of his sisters, thought to be Maria. Eventual DNA testing proved that all members of the family were accounted for. And the person they got the DNA to do that testing from was our recently departed Prince Philip, who I think is Alexandra's great-grand-nephew. They looked at the mitochondrial DNA. In the year 2000, just before they'd actually found Alexei and his sister, the Russian Orthodox Church declared the family were passion bearers. It's basically a form of saint. Mm -hmm. Unlike martyrs who must be killed or die because of their faith, passion bearers hold true to their faith in God until the very end, regardless of what their end is. One of the members of the White Rose was actually made a passion bearer as well. A church was built on the site of the House of Special Purpose. It's actually kind of funny. For 300 years, the Russian Orthodox Church was a pillar for keeping the Romanovs in power, and this just really made it official. Other members of the Romanovs were canonised by another church within Russia. Empress Alexandra had gone from Princess Alex to the Tsarina Alexandra of all the Russias, and she is today known as Saint Alexandra the Passion Bearer. The Romanovs today are buried together at the Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg. And they'll probably dig it up again and test the DNA. They do it every few years. Yeah. Every time they find new evidence, they're like, hey, let's have a dig. And let's then... make sure it's them. Yeah, so now they're sort of a tourist attraction more than anything else. Mm. Um, but I think it really is a tragedy. Yes. So, yeah. Do you have anything to you want to say about the Russian Revolution and the Romanovs and I, Alexandra? I feel like we've pretty much covered it. Like, we've said, you know, they made big mistakes. Mm. They were not good rulers. No. But they weren't terrible people. They were just really bad at their job, really misguided, really lost in their own thing, I think. Yeah, I think this... Just totally oblivious to anything. I think Nicholas and Alexandra never saw peasants as real people. Yeah. Whereas I think Lenin knew they were real people, but yeah. was willing to sacrifice them. Yeah. Ditto Trotsky. And then I think Stalin kind of returns to that czarist way of thinking of like... These are just numbers... Yeah, and, and that's to me, and that's my thinking. I, I haven't researched Stalin enough. Yeah. To, I do very early revolution, and <laughs> yes, and then you do it the rest of it. Um, it's just hard to say, really. Yeah, but I think yeah, the failure of seeing people as people is yeah. what tracks down. Yeah, that's what causes unpopular leaders. Yeah, exactly. And like it happened with COVID as well. People were like let's open up. Like if people will die, it's like yeah, those people are human beings. Yeah, those numbers they matter. Those those numbers aren't numbers. They're people. Yeah. 
they didn't the Romanovs didn't deserve the ending they got either. No, so much of the cruelty of the Russian Revolution, it's just and the French Revolution too. These are so often connected because a they study together in Victoria, <laughs> but b um there's also a lot of parallels between both Louis the Sixteenth and Nicholas the yeah. Second and Marie Antoinette and Alexandra. Yeah. And then communist leaders were also inspired by, by the French and the, this idea of the terror that comes yeah. a little later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that we're just like oh by the way Lenin was there. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> What just the inability to see people as people is what the cruelty comes down yeah. to and this ideological destruction. Yeah, it's insane. Exactly. It the, is. the loss of life is just on this horrible, horrible mm. scale. And as and you said like earlier, not just, you know, clean executions, but like horrifically cruelty botched. and brutality. Alexei was that team. Yeah. Yeah. Dog survived. That's a that's the end on that. That's a good note to end on. Is the dog it? survived. Well, we a lot of what we know about the execution comes from so the whites actually won Ekaterinburg they took mm. it back for a little for, for a hot minute and so they sort of had like a little inquest like they investigated it and they did find some details they didn't find I think they did find the bodies but they reburied them very quickly mm. or they couldn't get them out in time they found the house they interviewed yep. some people who'd like heard things and, seen it. and yep. so that information was also used but I have a feeling this is hearsay I bet Ekaterinburg had the folk memory the oh, whole 100%. way of like knowing that's where they died and how yeah. it happened because people would talk they were yeah. drunk most yeah. of the Red Army were just like locals who'd yeah. gotten swept up in the fervor it's like my whole thing with like conspiracy theories and stuff mm. it's really hard for people to keep a secret yeah like, like the, moon landing, the more people scale. have to keep yeah. a secret the harder it is yeah so like in this 100% there would have been people in Ekaterinburg who were like yeah we know what happened but they couldn't talk about it and it couldn't kind of get out at the time but 100% people knew what was going on, where yeah. they'd been buried, etc. But yeah, for a long time there was some confusion because um, they basically said the Tsar has been killed. They admitted mm-hmm. to that, the Soviets. But they're like, we also put... Some people said they put the princesses on a train and they just fucked off. Mm-hmm. So like, no one knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. That's why... This is one of the reasons... This is a this is my note to end on. It's one of the reasons I really went off Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, the thing is, I don't like... I, I have this thing. The reason a lot of people don't like biographies and historical films is they're like... They, it's like the characters will know they're in a historical event. They act like everything was really important. Like yeah. People don't always act like that. You, people are always people. You don't know that the thing you're going through at this current time is going to be an important world-changing yeah. event at the time. And so Dance and Abbey started the year I was doing revolutions at high school. And there's this bit where the Irish chauffeur, chauffeur's like, there's been a revolution in Russia. Hooray! I'm the representative of the working class in this show. <laughs> and then um, the dad's like, what's going to happen to the Tsar and his family? Oh, no. And the Irish chauffeur's like, oh, I'm sure they'll be treated wonderfully by the Bolsheviks. Like, yeah. in like a, and it's just a thing of like, ha-ha, very funny. Yeah. And it's a way of showing innocence because it was so clumsily done. I've just been like, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and I know it, that's a dumb thing to get hung up on. Yeah. That's what yeah. I get hung up on. That's fair. Yeah. That's a better note to end on, honestly. Yeah. The dog survived! Yay for the dog! Um, and also, four of their servants were also murdered that night. And I... We don't really talk about them either, because for a long time I thought it was just the Romanovs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, four of them, they were buried separately in the forest somewhere. Yeah. So, lest we forget them as well. Yeah. Anything else? It took us away from the dog. That was a good note. The dog survived! Oh, I don't like it at all. But it's... That poor dog. It's better. Is it? Maybe. Right. Let's end on my favourite joke about... Soviet history. Okay, tell me the joke. Okay, so what happens? So, what is it if you're on a date and you go to some guy's place and he has the flag of the Soviet Union on his wall? Yep. That's a big red flag. Ha! <laughs> Favorite joke. Let's end on that. Okay, that's a really good one. <laughs> okay, um, we have at Women of War Pod uh, for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hit us up. 
Tell us what you like. We have a website, like. womenofworldpod.com. Uh, join our newsletter. Or not. Or not. It's up to you. Um, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you wouldn't mind. It would really help uh, get the word out. And so people know us. Yeah. And Thank you so much for listening for and listening. sticking with us. We will see you next week. Fortnite. See you Finally, next time. Finally, you made that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. See you next time. <laughs>